I'm sorry, mister. I didn't mean to hit you. You were wonderful. I enjoyed that. But don't stand there. You better beat it. No, I'll call a policeman. No, no, don't do that. Why not? You crazy? Look out. There's more coming. More what? Wait a minute. Hello, and welcome to the first Screen Test of Time episode of the new decade. And Happy New Year! This is the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. And I'm going to pedantically insist that 2021 is... No, I'm just fucking with you. It's 2020. (laughs) Hi, everybody. It's David Dahl. (laughs) This week we're on our seventh movie in the 1940 nominees, The Great Dictator, directed, written, produced, scored by, and starring (laughs) Charlie Chaplin. A movie that is sadly still pretty relevant. Yeah, yeah, that is one thought I had a lot while watching this movie. And the other is that I think it is the most interesting movie we have watched in a certain way because it's such a complete window into an alternate history of film that we 100% didn't take. I would love for you to expound on this because I don't know that I understand. So I can't say whether I agree or not. I mean, I guess I'm maybe using too strong a term of saying 100%, but like, this is such a weird movie because even though there is dialogue and you hear Charlie Chaplin speak in it, it still has an extremely silent movie sensibility about the way it uses action and the way it does comedy. And you still see flashes of that, but like, extended, extended portions of this movie are like, arguments that you don't really need dialogue, that we're overusing dialogue. Mm -hmm. They're pretty good arguments. Those sequences that don't use dialogue or sort of question the use of dialogue in film are really pretty good, but they also are just like, oh, we just kind of stopped doing this. Or we would do it like once as a flashy showpiece in a movie and not like this movie where... Every joke is very physical. Right. Every joke is very physical. A lot of jokes are extremely visual. Even though there is dialogue, there are also... I'd say maybe up to a third of this film is just a silent movie is just not operating as dialogue. There may be spoken words, but they're not necessary in any way. Right. And then there are some that are just straight up silent. Right. But there is also, like you say, like that opening World War One sequence. Technically, there's dialogue in there. You probably would need a title card or two somewhere in it. But it's like a five, ten minute sequence that honestly you're not there for the dialogue at all. It's not even really necessary. And it feels a lot like the bits of dialogue that are there are mostly Chaplin saying, look, I'm not actually a Luddite. Right. (laughs) Even while the comedy of it, which is quite successful, I think, has no need for it at all. Yeah. I mean, I guess we should sort of get into the plot summary because it's, I don't know, I kind of almost want to organize this episode totally differently because the plot plot seems so incidental here in a weird way, even though there's some heavy stuff goes in the plot. Yeah, I don't know that we even need to go through the story beats to start, but just mention what the movie is. So it is essentially a satire of the rise of Hitler and Charlie Chaplin plays two characters, a Jewish private who served in World War One, who 
is uh, a barber who lives in the Jewish ghetto and the Hitler character who's named Adenoid Hinkle. Yeah. And that's really kind of all that you need to know about the plot because again, like you said, the plot is kind of incidental. It's really just to satirize fascism and Hitler. Yeah. And Mussolini. (laughs) Right. The Jewish barber character that Chaplin plays has a little bit more of a plot than that, where he meets a woman in the ghetto and has to, like, live through the rise of fascism and the rise of anti-Semitism in the definitely not Germany country that he lives in. Tomania. But, yeah, generally speaking, it is a series of set pieces that are satirizing Hitler and satirizing Nazis in general, and really fascism in general, because the Mussolini section is one of my favorite sections of the film. There's also this layer that we've sort of talked about of stuff that's weird amounts of this are like commentary on the film industry operate as like weirdly meta for a 1940 movie. I watched this with Nikki and Nikki talked about how when Chaplin finally shows up in the iconic hat with the cane, it's like fucking Captain America getting his shield. (laughs) The movie is like, it's finally happening. He's here with the cane. Yeah, he has this sort of little tramp character, even though the barber speaks and has more of a personality. No, that's not the right word. He has more of a spoken story than the little trap character does in the silent films yeah the other one that i really thought of is almost the very last moment of the film is one silent movie star turning to another silent movie star and literally saying you have to speak it is our only hope (laughs) then he does and it's real fucking good that's a really good (laughs) point i hadn't even thought of that but yeah It operates extremely well as a takedown of fascism and a parody of Triumph of the Will, which is explicitly set up as, because Chaplin apparently watched that with a French experimental filmmaker who was horrified by the propaganda elements of it. Louis Bunuel. He's actually Spanish. Oh. So I guess it's Luis. I don't know. I don't speak Spanish, but he did a lot of stuff with Dolly. This is just a small anecdote on the Wikipedia page. He was horrified by the film because... The propaganda in it is horrifying and effective. And like, Nikki and I were discussing exactly why while we were watching the movie, but Chaplin's apparent reaction was to just laugh uproariously at it. And I think when you watch this, my argument would be he was laughing because he knew how the trick was done, and therefore knew the trick could be used to other ends could be redirected. What's really interesting about this to me, and it makes this for me a complicated film to talk about in so far as the screen test of time is concerned is that there are some definite parallels to the way that famous people and famous comedians in particular handle these strong men people who are becoming more and more a problem in 2019-2020 and you know how successful really is poking fun at it versus treating it as a real threat like maybe Luis Bunuel was correct that like it should never be shown (laughs) well I mean the other thing I was thinking about is this is the only film we've watched after like five films that are ostensibly about anti-semitism that calls anti-semitism by name mentions that Jews exist while talking about anti-semitism oh yeah I mean that's what I'm saying is like it's a pretty complicated thing to deal with and Chaplin himself apparently said that had he known what was going on at the time and so far as like concentration camps 
that he wouldn't have made the movie. And it's an interesting thing to think about because I think that the movie is actually quite good. And I think that it does a lot of good work in so far as bringing up these actual issues, particularly because the U.S. was not involved in World War II yet. And people kept trying to tell them, like, look, the Nazis are doing some fucked up stuff to Jews and the U.S. government wasn't responding. So in that way, it obviously is doing some really important activist work, I think. But the question is, does satire really have any sort of impact other than making people feel good about mocking things that are bad? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that that is probably a larger question than we can answer in this one podcast. I mean, my answer would be yes. I mean, a lot of my academic life was spent on a variation of this question. And I would say that, yeah, it definitely gets complicated because catharsis does weird shit around political activity. We could go into a whole like 40 minute aside about Bertolt Brecht here. Generally speaking, I do think that there is political value and political utility to cutting the air out of bad people. I think this movie generally does a pretty good job of balancing more broad comic sequences about Hitler. I mean, honestly, one of the things I thought about is that really the most common Hitler joke in this movie is weirdly that he's just a guy. That, like, he has a physical human body and, like, fucking falls over like everybody else does. Well, and that he's quite insecure about that fact. Right. Weirdly, I feel like the makers of the Lego Batman movie probably watched this movie a lot. I have not seen it, so I can in no way comment on that. I th- just that portrayal of Batman as constantly so outwardly cool, but then immediately utterly insecure about whether he's pulling off being cool or not. Yeah, okay. Just had a lot of parallels to me. But like the general bit of making him, I mean, he is buffoonish. But one of the moments I've been thinking about a lot since I watched this movie like three or four days ago now, there's just this moment where he, in a fit of rage, sends one of his advisors to a concentration camp, and then another party member in the room drapes a huge blanket around him, and he is initially so surprised by the blanket. And kind of discomforted that, like, he didn't get to prepare for it and look cool. And then kind of tries to figure out how to make having a big blanket wrapped around yourself look dramatic and dashing. That isn't really pointed political commentary in any way, but it's like weirdly such a good takedown of fascism and the idea that this one superior man will save us because he's just this fucking weirdo in a blanket. I think another thing that this movie does really, really well is demonstrate that the mechanism behind these people is always the marketing and the spin because you have this Goebbels version who is called Garbage Which I thought was like, this is way too broad and it'll never work. And then when the Mussolini stand-in came in and kept calling him the garbage, I was like, this is maybe the greatest bit ever done. I mean, to be fair, it's spelled G-A-R-B-I-T-S-C-H, I I think. 
But it sounds like garbage. Right. There's no real plausible, deniable way to pronounce it as anything but garbage. Yeah. People try in Act 1 and don't really pull it off. And then in Act 3, when somebody comes in and is just like, I'm going to neg you by just calling you garbage to your face over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that I think is actually a really valuable way of demonstrating that the great men of history is actually only as good as the propaganda machine behind them. Because garbage is always quite cool and is always really the one who is pulling the strings and telling him what to do. I mean, when I say he's quite cool, I mean he's calm. I don't mean he's like a good dude. Right. Just to clarify for people who think I'm making that comparison. And also, like, even if you're a monster and therefore think fascism is cool, he's not even cool in that context. He is very much the Josh Lyman West Wing monologue about I want to be the guy, you want to be the guy the guy counts on. He wants someone else to be cool, even in an evil fascist context. Right. And I think that also demonstrates what you're talking about, is that Hinkle is this weird guy in a blanket who is only propped up by garbage one thing i will say as far as the question of can satire be a bit anesthetizing is that there are points in this movie where it really does not flinch at some serious horror even if it doesn't come to fruition for instance when the barber apparently has been like in a psych ward or in a hospital or something for 20 plus years and doesn't know that there is a war on and doesn't know about the rise of fascism. So when he comes home and they're painting Jew on the front of his store and he ends up getting into a fight with the stormtroopers who are doing this, the stormtroopers get together and come back to the ghetto and they start to literally string him up from a lamppost. They're going to hang him in the middle of the street And it's pretty horrifying. And the fact that he is saved by this guy who was his friend in the army doesn't really pull the punches from that. You're still like, oh my god, they were literally just going to kill a man in the street, extrajudicially. Later on, there is another similar sequence. And it is around the first time you really see him in like the full Little Tramp attire. Then very quickly, there's a, I mean, roughly it's crystal knocked that starts happening and Nikki was like is this the first Chaplin movie where you're genuinely afraid he's gonna die yeah because he always ends up getting sort of physically hurt in a comedic way but you're never worried that he's actually gonna drown or that whatever just fell on his head is gonna kill him and for the first time it feels like there are genuinely stakes yeah I think one of the problems with this movie in a cinematic sense is It does not always juggle those tonal shifts well between extremely broad comedy and very, very earnest portraits of creeping anti-Semitism when it switches gears, or at least you very much have to get on the movie's wavelength about that. It does not in any way hold your hand. You go like, oh, we're very serious now a couple of times throughout the movie. I don't know if I necessarily hate that effect, but it's a little bit off-putting. It feels so weirdly hollow, given the, like, stakes this movie is playing with, to do, yeah, but does it work as a movie? But I also think this is a weird movie, because it's exactly one man's vision, and it's a man who has a very particular place in Hollywood history that is desperately trying to elbow his way into, at that time, the present, a little bit after his heyday. As a result, it has a really weird energy (laughs) at times, even outside of the fact 
that it jumps back and forth between a dance routine with Hitler and a giant balloon of the planet and, like, people getting beaten in the street. (laughs) See, I actually liked that. I thought that it ended up giving a little more weight to the fact that there's this essentially spoiled child who has the fate of the entire world in his hands in a pretty literal sense with the balloon and the result is that people are getting actually physically hurt and killed i liked that generally speaking i did too i think what took me out of it was this feeling of like is this an intentional effect i just wasn't quite sure whether the movie was doing that on purpose or didn't know how to transition between the two you know In the end, I think you're right. It kind of doesn't matter because it works either way. I don't have a lot of criticisms of it as far as like visual, script-wise, directing, acting. Everybody in it is giving a hell of a performance. They're very committed, which is always so critical for satire. If you're the goofball in the satire, you have to be really committed to that. If you're the totally straight guy, like the older guy who lives in the ghetto next door to the Jewish barber, who is really just a very sympathetic older man. Everybody is totally playing it straight. Totally committed, I guess, is the better thing to say, because Benzino Napoloni, who is the Mussolini character, is the furthest thing from playing something straight I've ever seen. He is an absolute just walking joke. Uh, Yeah. I mean, in terms of just straight making fun of fascism, that's the strongest stretch of the movie. It's really funny. It's a really good Mussolini impression in terms of like what makes him tick. The immediate comparison I made with Nikki is Champ Kind, the sportscaster in Anchorman. Oh, yeah. He's an asshole and he's kind of a jock, but does he know he's an asshole? Oh, he knows he's an asshole. Wait, does he know he's an asshole? Yeah. He is just constantly playing status games with everybody else on screen, but they have just this edge of plausible deniability where he might just be kind of an oaf, so don't worry about it. He's really fantastic, and Jack Oakey, who plays him, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and totally deserved to be that in a movie where a lot of people could have also been nominated for that, to be honest. For sure. Uh, Yes, I've been trying to uh, get the name of the female lead. Paulette Goddard. She's fantastic in this. Yeah. Even though I kind of criticized it a little bit, I think without her, that mix of tones would totally fall apart. She is this weird buffer between the comedy end and the, like, very, very straight portrait of horrifying things end of the movie. She's also really playing, even though she has quite a few lines... And I don't think she's actually in any of these moments where the scene is really a silent movie scene in a talkie. But she's really playing a sort of Clara Bow, cutesy, a little spunky romantic interest for a lot of it. And then some really bad shit happens to her, and she manages to carry that transition really effortlessly. That is sort of what I mean. That part at the very end where she has to be earnestly wrecked by the way that anti-Semitism has come back into her life and is literally beating everyone around her in a movie starring Charlie Chaplin is the, like, fucking half-gainer of this movie. And she pulls it off. Oh, yeah. I think the really only performance I could criticize is Chaplin's, and all of my performance criticisms are 
very metatextual. I think he does a fine job with the acting. It's just weird to see Charlie Chaplin talk. (laughs) It's uncomfortable, right? Like, it was really uncomfortable. It took like 40 minutes of the movie to get used to it. And then weirdly, right around the time I finally got used to it, there's a sequence where they're like, well, don't worry, we know it's weird to have him talk. He's going to be quiet for a while now. And it's like, why are you doing that now? Why like I? Why didn't you do that at the start of the movie? It's like he starts the movie naked and then halfway through they go, oh, we'll put some clothes on him. Right. I don't think it's necessarily bad weird. Uh, again, just like the shifting tones. I think it gives this movie a strange energy that kind of makes it distinct and memorable, but it is strange, nevertheless. Oh, yeah. Oh, one thing we haven't touched on that I think is actually really important to note is that Hinkle, who is the Hitler analog that Chaplin plays, gives a lot of these big Hitler-type speeches, or he'll fly into a rage At which point he speaks gibberish German. Like, it's not real German except for occasional words like sauerkraut. Yeah, and it almost derailed the movie for me (laughs) the first time it happened. I loved it because I felt like this guy could be saying fucking anything. It's just gibberish. It's the way that it's presented that is making people flock to him and that it's lampooning the actual content of Nazism as crap. And pointless. I would say two things save it. And one is an energy this movie starts really given in the scenes where people do that of like, I don't know, maybe it's the Germans turn to have some people just be weird and shitty and say some like stereotypical things about them. That's like, yeah, maybe kind of for 1940. And two is that it is almost always accompanied by this very, very smart device where there is a quote-unquote translator in the pocket of this Hinkle Hitler figure who is giving you the gist of the whole thing after he gets done doing a nonsense monologue. That is, I think, the most effective satire in the movie is the satire about the media and the satire about the way speech affects people and how hollow it can be and how much you can just kind of bullshit whatever so long as you're saying it in the right tone. Right. The translator is kind of a narrator that almost feels like when you watch a figure who's being interviewed on 60 Minutes or something who is a political figure from another country and they say something and then there's an English translation on top of it. Yeah. And the incisive joke in that first speech scene. I know which one you're going to do because it's so good. He goes on and on about something and he's talking about Jews and you know he's talking about Jews. And he talks for a long time and is very angry and makes a lot of really violent hand motions and says bad things about them. And then the translation is just, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it's Hinkle is now saying that he disapproves of the Jewish people. That's not what he communicated at all. And it was still nonsense. And I got it. So two details that I think are vital. (laughs) Eh, Only one is vital is that during this speech, he is so powerfully filled with hatred that all of the microphones around him are physically repulsed by him and try and get away from him screaming at them. Oh, I totally missed that. Or maybe I didn't. There's a lot of visual jokes in this movie. He 
is doing his very clear screed about Jews that is so angry and so filled with hate that the microphone stand curls up to try and get away. And to the exact phrasing is, Herr Dictator has just referred to the Jewish people. Oh, yeah. It's even more <laughs> innocuous. <laughs> right. I mean, that's also a super accurate and unfortunately relevant lampooning of the press and the way that things are interpreted, because Ugh. that's every headline about something that the current president says. For sure. And then you read it and it's like, oh, my God, the thing he actually said was really so much more horrible. The reason I want to bring up the microphone stand bit is I'm going to do one of my classic nobody cares about this but me, but I'm going to bring it back, I swear. Thanks. One of the few people I still follow on Twitter is just this random guy, I don't even remember how I found him, who's like into anime Twitter named Grant the Thief. And he is doing a reread of this like 900 chapter huge manga called One Piece that's like the biggest shonen manga in Japan. Yeah, everybody knows One Piece. He likes to do a thing where he takes a standout panel of if each issue he tries to pick. This is the panel that is doing something artistically I want to talk about. And one of the things he talks about all the time is how cartoonish exaggeration can increase emotional heft, can make something feel more real and more important. And this movie seems like such a vision of a world where cinema did that more. Because there are so many visual gags in this, like when they try to go out for the date and the loudspeakers that are playing Hinkle's speech physically chase them down the street, make them go into, physically make them hide. Just the sound of his voice. Right. And that cartoonish exaggeration makes you really feel the anti-Semitism. More than just them wrapping their coats up around their neck and, like, getting scared and trying to rush back home, you know? Even though it is ridiculous and comedic because of that over-the-top exaggeration, there's so much what you would think of now as fucking prop comedy Yes, in this movie that is actually really emotionally affecting and about, like, really scary shit. I get what you're saying about the satire, but to me, in a way that doesn't undercut it at all, it makes the seriousness of the thing feel even more serious in its exaggeratedness. The microphone bits are the big ones, but there's a moment where Hinkle, the Goebbels figure, is like buttering him up and telling him he's going to be dictator of the world. And he goes into this like girlish glee, like, oh no, you mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't thing. And then physically runs 15 feet up a curtain, gripping the side of it. That's absurd. You shouldn't be able to pull that off. Yeah, this is that kind of ridiculous motherfucker. Like, that <laughs> That actually does check out. Yes. Again, it's not like no movie has ever done this ever again, but it is such a weird window into God, I wish movies did it more. We didn't really go down this avenue. Every once in a while, like, Mel Brooks will brush it off. Somebody will kind of do this kind of a thing, but it always has, like, the history of the next 70, 80 years of talkies behind it. Right. And is often kind of doing visual storytelling as a party trick. And is dealing with subjects that, I mean, like, Mel Brooks will have moments of social commentary, absolutely, in his movies, but the overarching film is not about that. Right, or the moments of visual storytelling aren't. Like, you know, there's plenty of social commentary in Blazing Saddles, but, like, 
the let's comb the desert giant comb joke from Spaceballs is not speaking truth to power. Um, you know? <laughs> no, it's just funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's fine. Just doing this to be funny is fine, too. But, like, there's such a weird power and kind of unexploited power in the visual exaggeration this movie does about fascism, about ethnic cleansing, like really serious stuff that it pulls off. I think it's really brilliant. I I don't know why I'm hesitating to go for a 10. Maybe you can explain to me why I'm hesitating to go for a 10. I, it was interesting to me earlier that you said you didn't really have any quibbles with the acting or writing or the filmmaking. It has the feel of a like weird, very personal passion project, which I think is mostly to the film's benefit but also means that there are just some weird choices at points with of this movie that I'm like, yeah, I guess I can go with it because I like the rest of the movie. Yeah, like the mustard scene I could have lived without. The mustard scene, I really came to love the sequence, but I feel like humor about how Hitler keeps an Iron Man schedule and is constantly moving has not aged particularly well. I'm sure there were like a bunch of profiles about that back in the 1930s and 40s. It has not filtered down to the present day that he was supposed to be always moving, always doing stuff. German super weapon humor, however, ageless and fantastic. And how it always doesn't work or accidentally kills someone. Yeah. Right. And how Hitler always makes terrible decisions about which ones to green light and which ones not to green light. Right. Very, very good. But there are just little moments where I just think this is not the best made movie we've seen. It's maybe the most interesting movie we've seen. I really like it. I'm going to give it a really high grade. I think things like the mustard scene, why I'm having this like conflict about the movie making is that even while that scene is totally superfluous, does nothing I mean, we've already had so many examples of Napoloni and Hinkle going back and forth trying to one-up each other all the time. Yeah. But the reason why I'm thinking of it in a sort of visual sense, it's beautifully shot in a beautiful setting. And it's weird because I'm like, this scene is frankly kind of stupid, but it looks gorgeous. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. Not even that it just looks gorgeous, but it's like, this scene in the film is stupid. We've already gotten this plot beat. The core thing is such exaggerated setup and doesn't even make sense. Spicy English mustard? What? But I'll be damned if when Chaplin eats the spicy English mustard and starts freaking out on the couch, I didn't laugh uproariously, because he really goes for it, freaking out on the couch. <laughs> And then it's Hitler and Mussolini both freaking out about the hot thing in their mouth on a couch. And you're like, I didn't need this, but I, I kind of love it anyway. I think that's really what it is, is even when it has these super scenes, they're so well done that I'm not mad about it. I'm not like, why is this not moving the plot forward? You know? Yeah. I mean... Also, honestly, we should talk about that last monologue before we rate the movie. Oh, yeah. Like the most important thing in the entire film. Yes. So in my head, the last time I'd seen this was like high school. And in my head, the Prince and the Popper, but with Hitler bit was way more of the movie. Like way, way earlier. <laughs> 
But only at the very, very end is it plot critical that the Jewish barber and Hinkle look identical to each other. Because after escaping the concentration camp in one of the sequences that kind of shows that Charlie Chaplin didn't really know what was going on in concentration camps at the time, he is now dressed up in a Tomanian officer's uniform, which means he looks like... Like a Nazi. Yeah, and looks like the leader of the country and gets mistaken for him as they go through a checkpoint. And then they're like, we got to keep going with it. You have to go along or they're going to find us out. You have to keep being the dictator. And they get dragged to the huge victory speech that not Hitler is supposed to be giving about the invasion of not Austria. And he ends up, just to keep going with the ruse, having to give the speech. And gives a speech that is good enough and still relevant enough that Wikipedia reproduces it in its entirety on the Great Dictator Wikipedia page, if you want to go read it. But in general, it is about how fascism obscures the universal brotherhood of man that we all know to be true, and that we can all support each other, or we can all destroy each other in the name of some mythical other. And that we can let the amazing advancements that we have accomplished bring us all together or try and hoard it all for ourselves and live in poverty no matter how much we have. And um, it's just Charlie Chaplin, famous silent film actor, directly speaking to the camera for about three minutes. Really tight close up. And boy, it works. Oh, God, it's so good. And he's pouring sweat. Yeah. And in a way that it doesn't feel like nerves, it's just passion is dripping out of his face. It is another reason why I am okay with the satire of this movie, maybe being able to be misconstrued or letting people off the hook, because its ending moment is such a direct political appeal to exactly what this movie thinks. It is very effective and very affecting. It is the movie and Chaplin, by extension, like, really wearing its heart on its sleeve in a way that I think is weirdly necessary for good satire (laughs) to give you that true north of like, no, this is a thing that's true. This is what I believe. In case you missed it, this is what all of the irony was leading up to is this moment I mean, moment is actually taking away both the gravitas of it and the length of it, because it's quite long. Yeah. But it is the absolute sincerity that all of the irony of the film was setting you up for. And it's really quite beautiful. Susan, I think I just talked myself into a 10. <laughs> I said, I'm the one that said we can't just give 10s every time there's a really good movie. But this is a really good movie. And I think I just talked myself into a 10. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't... I, I I came in here going like, eight, nine, somewhere in there, and definitely watch this movie. And I'm I'm just, I've slowly <laughs> talked myself into a tag. Yes. <laughs> I'm fine with you giving it a tag. I'm not going to argue you out of it. I... The problem is I have no valid reason to not give it a 10, and yet... Ah, fuck it, it's a 10. Yeah, all right, let's do it. <laughs> I'm thinking about everything else that I've given a 10 to, and is this a better movie than Rebecca? I don't know, because again, it is so comparing apples and oranges. It's almost a totally different medium, even though it's the same medium. Right, like, we have given 10s before to movies that, like this movie, I also would argue aren't perfect movies. 
But God, I want more movies to be made like this today. (laughs) It's adventurous. It's not trying to be a perfect Hollywood movie. It's not trying to be a perfect film. It's trying to do good. And I think that that's commendable. And it's very brave about the way in which it does it. It is committed, which is so important to comedy, but is just a good value to have. In art? Generally speaking, in art. Yeah. It is such a strong statement of intent. From the director. And writer, and star, and composer. (laughs) And producer. (laughs) Part of that is like, I'm sure it helps to be one of the biggest stars in Hollywood and rich as fuck in order to be able to make a strong statement of intent versus like having to fucking direct a Star Wars movie or whatever. I don't know. I wish more movies were made like this. It's great. 10 out of 10, you should watch this movie. It is streaming on the Criterion channel, which I just signed up for, and probably available widely everywhere. (laughs) I am not yet signed up to the Criterion channel, but the Amazon Prime video version you buy is the Criterion version, which looks fantastic. It's beautiful. I don't know if they restored it or what bullshit they did, but whatever bullshit it was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing next week? So next week, I have a feeling it's going to be a really hard crash of a letdown from this high. Oh, boy. It is The Letter, starring Betty Davis, directed by the guy who did Jezebel, and features some yellow face. So... Ooh, boy. You know, I was finishing up on my holiday trip, that six-part, you must remember this series about Song of the South, and she goes for a long time about what cowardly fucks Hollywood was in the 40s, and I was like, I don't know, it feels like they're really turning this around. There's a lot of movies that actually, like, talk about shit, and they're, like, really actually finally, but, like, yeah, it makes sense that we're about to hit that real dip when the HUAC starts coming in. Yeah. Yeah. We should also probably save some of this vitriol for having watched the movie. Um, Yes, fair enough. But come back next time, please. And if not, come back the time after that when we watch the Philadelphia story and are in a much better mood. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And until then... This was a weird movie, and I mean that as a compliment for once. This was a hell of a movie. Yeah. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. Leave me. I want to be alone.